to greet you all this morning in the precious name of Jesus. It's good to be together. Uh, thought about Jesus addressing his disciples. Uh, I realize you're not my disciples. As a little flock, and uh, there's something intimate about a small group. Uh, trust God has something for us this morning, even in our uh, small numbers. Yes. Kingdom is reserved for a little flock. Good. Uh, I didn't ask Jason to open with the devotion he had this morning, but uh, if I'd have thought of it, I would have. Um, I know him pretty well. Probably better than most of you. Um, I would probably be able to tell you a number of his attributes that I've observed and um, over time. And, but sometimes when he and I are having a discussion, uh, he'll up and say something and I'll just, where did that come from? Well, it came from the mind of Jason. Knowing his attributes is not the same as intimately knowing his mind. And I think that might have been what he was getting at when he said, our God is incapable of being known. I, th- I, I heard him saying, utterly known. Um, I've heard someone say that the difficulty of uh, understanding God completely, even as Joshua said to God this morning, uh, what were you thinking? Wouldn't it be better if we were still on the other side of Jordan? Um, there was a disconnect between the mind of Joshua and the mind of God. And uh, someone told me that uh, I was to take on the mind of Jason. Uh, well, that would be an interesting thought. I don't really know how I'd do it. That would mean that no matter what happened, no matter what I saw, no matter what anyone said, I would respond exactly, precisely as Jason would respond. There's a verse here in uh, 1 Peter 4, verse 1, be the text for today. I'd like to take a bigger chunk, but I'm afraid this is going to be challenging enough. But in this verse, 1 Peter 4 and verse 1, I'd like to break it into four parts, and we, we read this. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. I'm going to spend some time talking about the for as much then, which is looking back and looking forward, a, a transition here in the epistle. I want to talk about Christ's suffering for us in the flesh. I want to spend some time thinking about what it means to arm yourself with the same mind, that is, Christ's mind is armor. We need it. Back to this concept of utterly knowing God or utterly knowing Christ. We're to arm ourselves with this mind. Do we know this mind? Um, Someone has said it's, you get in trouble when you try to unscrew the inscrutable. And that is uh, over-examine something that's beyond explanation. This concept of utterly knowing God. If, if we look carefully enough and study hard enough and pray enough, we can utterly know every detail about God. That's scrutinizing God. God is inscrutable, it's incapable to be utterly known. And yet we're commanded here to arm ourselves with Christ's mind. I want to 
think a little bit about that. Probably many of you uh, heard this past week about this deep sea submersible that imploded, uh, attempting to get down to the Titanic. I don't know a lot about it. I don't uh, have much of that story to tell you, but I was intrigued by the fact that the man that uh, conceived this submersible that funded it and that built it and then took it down to impossible depths and uh, uh, terrifying pressures and ultimately lost his life and the life of the people with him, the lives of the people with him, that he disregarded warnings. That is, there were specific warnings made. He innovated with this submersible a carbon fiber hull when everyone else uses steel. We were talking about that a little this week. Why in the world? Maybe it was for vanity. Maybe, I don't know. But a lot of people told him, this is, this is brittle. This is uh, unexplored engineering. You, you're taking other people's lives and your life in your own hands. And he disregarded these warnings. And he went down to, what was it, 12,000 feet or close to there. Um, lost his life and the, the lives of those that trusted him. I want to talk a little bit about the warning that's implicit in this verse, that we need to arm ourselves with the same mind, that is Christ's mind. And just consider what that means, what that's asking of us. And if we presume to experience the Christian life in a God-pleasing, God-honoring way, we expect there are going to be difficulties and suffering that are beyond us. And are we armed with the mind of Christ? To think about this this morning. Jake asked me last week in his testimony what I did with the he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. I'm afraid he might have to ask me that again this week. I'm not even sure I'll quite get to that. Um, there's a lot there, but there's a lot here in this verse, and uh, we do well to pay attention to it. Before we get into uh, this text, I'd like you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18 with me. I want to think a little bit about King Ahab taking a warning from a man of God lightly. Took a warning from a man of God lightly. The, the context here in 1 Kings 18 is Mount Carmel. Um, the prophets of Baal have been destroyed, and, and now uh, God is sending deliverance in the form of rain for his people. 1 Kings 18 and verse 41. Notice a few things here about being careless about a warning. Elijah said to Ahab, verse 41, get thee up, eat and drink. There's the sound of an abundance of rain. Okay, there's a warning here. It's, it's clear. I, I looked this word up, abundance. It's, it's tumult. It's deluge. It's like flood of Noah kind of uh, rain. This was not a, a shower or even a downpour. This was a, a damaging flood of rain coming. This was a tumult of rain, and Ahab was warned. On to verse 42, Ahab went to eat and drink. Well, I'm not sure that was the right response. Um, okay, so a warning from the man of God. Um, destructive flood of rain is coming. Okay, um, let me go finish my meal. Elijah went to Carmel, cast himself down, put his face between his knees, and said to his servant, go look toward the sea. He went and looked. There's nothing, he said. Go again seven times, Elijah told him. You know, how often are we like that servant? That is, there's warnings in the word of God, and we go and look, and we see nothing. 
We've been spending a lot of time looking at 1 Peter and considering warnings that there's a storm coming. The soft, secure, safe life that we're enjoying as God's people in our time is not the norm. And we should have no expectation that it will continue the way it has been. The warning from the word of God is, children of God expect a damaging storm. We go and we look, we go and we look, there's nothing. Surely our faith will not cost us what it's cost our fathers. So, go again seven times. On the seventh time, the servant came back. Well, actually, Elijah, there is just a little bit of a a cloud out there in the sea. Of course, it's puny, it's, it's pathetic, size of a man's hand. Elijah said, go say to Ahab, prepare thy chariot, get thee down that the rain stop thee not. So Ahab gets another warning. There's a storm coming, you need to get out of here. Came to pass in the meanwhile, verse 45, the heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So now Ahab sees this warning from the man of God. There's something to it. There is a damaging storm coming and he took off. I understand these men in this submersible possibly were aware that their hull was cracking and failing and they had discharged their descent weights and were trying to surface, but Of course, it was too late for that. Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. I don't think this is necessarily the message of this text, but I think that as we consider 1 Peter, we do well to listen to the warnings and not commit the sin of doubt of the servant that ran off nothing, 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 nothing or even of Ahab, who was warned. There's a damaging storm coming. Well, sit down and drink and eat, and we'll see what happens. First Peter is warning about something that we need to be aware of, we need to prepare for. All right. We are still working through the implications of Peter telling us that Christ's life is to be an example for us. We're told in 1 Peter 2 that Christ suffered in the flesh, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We're told he's our example and we're to walk in his footsteps. We're told we're healed by his stripes. All these things point us to the fact that we can expect to be asked to suffer for the unjust, and that we are the avenue God has chosen as God's people to bring unjust to God. The watching world comes to God largely through the testimony of sanctified suffering. So, uh, back to 1 Peter. I think I had said I might just stand by it that uh, here in 1 Peter 2 and verse 20, it's kind of the climax of the epistle. If you want to put the epistle in a nutshell, I think it's right here. Verse 20, the second half of the verse. If when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Verse 21, even here unto precisely to this were you called because Christ suffered for us 
He left us an example. You should follow in his steps. Goes on. He did no sin. There's no guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness. By his stripes ye were healed. So we have this pattern for Jesus. We see him suffering, the just for the unjust. We see him bearing stripes that heal us. We see him being reviled and reviling not again. And we understand this is for us. These are attributes of Jesus, but is this the mind of Jesus? I'm I'm not sure that it is. We are to arm ourselves with the very mind of Jesus. I want to flip ahead a little bit to uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. We read, We are not to render evil for evil, railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing. This is speaking of a charge to us now, knowing you are thereunto called. That is our calling, to receive evil, to receive railing, and not return it. That is our calling. Christ is our example. We follow in his footsteps. Our eternal inheritance hinges on this. It says that you should inherit a blessing at the end of verse 9. It says, safe to say is that if you return evil for evil, or you return railing for railing, or you are not aware that you're called to this very thing, you will lose your blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips they speak no guile, let him eschew evil, eschew, and do good, let him seek peace and ensue it. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, his ears are open to the prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. I just want to stop there. The reason that we need to be ready to give an answer is because people are going to ask. They're going to observe a Christ-like response to suffering and evil, and they're going to say, what is behind that? That is beyond human ability. You'd better have your reason ready to every man that asketh of you. Verse 16, have a good conscience. They'll speak evil of you as evildoers. They may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation. It's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than evildoing, not I guess goes without saying, uh, but here it's said. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. What was the point of Christ's suffering? That he might bring us to God. What is the point of our suffering? According to Peter, throughout the epistle, over and over, Christ suffered to give us an example. His suffering is exemplary. We examine it. We see how it was compelling to us. It drug us against Everything human in us, it drug us to God. It paid the price of our redemption. Christ suffered the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Put to death in the flesh, quickened by the Spirit. Now, I read all of that because I'm, I'm going to set aside verse 19 to 23. I said in the last message, this passage is parenthetical. And that just sounds like kind of 
crazy $20 word, but it's really not. That is, what's going on here is there's a side thought. It's a bunny trail sounds a little irreverent. I, I think I won't use that term. I'm going to say a side thought. It stands on its own, and it interrupts the text. I'm not saying in a bad way, but it interrupts the line of thought. Verse 18 is the end of the thought that Peter's following. Verse 19 to 22, I'm going to set aside for now because personally, I have enough trouble following what's being said here without dealing with this parenthetical topic. Verse 19 to 22. Um, I may come back to that, but for now, I want to just plow on through with Peter's point here, which is that Christ suffered just for the unjust to bring us to God. 19 through 22, important, valuable, the word of God as much as anything else, but it's a side thought. And then we come down to chapter 4 and verse 1, for as much then. Shall we look at that? For as much then is uh, a little difficult uh, for me to wrap my mind around. I, I actually checked it. It's 43 times in scripture for as much. Um, it's other times translated as therefore or seeing that, and I think the simplest translation of it is since. And we can just use since here because it is maybe more helpful than for as much than as. So we read here, for as much then as, and we're going to put in since just because it's easier to wrap our minds around that. Since Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. I don't know about you, but I can, I can follow that better. The sense is connecting us back to verse 18. Christ suffered just for the unjust to bring us to God. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, see the connection, arm yourselves with the same mind. So I want to talk a little bit about Christ's suffering for us in the flesh. And then most of the time that's left, hopefully there is some, I'd like to talk about how we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. So Peter is spending some time describing for us what an acceptable Christian life looks like, how we respond to stress and difficulties, struggles, pressures, tribulation. And we want to know how do we respond we can look around, there's, someone has counted and said there's two billion people on planet Earth that would name the name of Christ. Can we look at them and safely decide what, what is a God-honoring, God-pleasing, God-delighting, God-glorifying Christian life? How do we know what that would look like? Well, look around at the two billion people that name the name. Careful, though, there's danger there because we expect that the mainstream has adopted Error and compromise, we see it. We know we can't just look at every church we drive past and say, how do those people live? How do they respond to difficulties and pressures in the Christian life? That's my model. Can't do that. This won't surprise anybody. Um, the right thing to do to decide how to navigate a difficult Christian life is to look into the word. James says this, Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in his deed. So we look into the perfect law of liberty. 
and continue therein. Simple enough. We look to the word. Well, here we have the book of Peter. I brought along a, uh, a book by kind of a rare man. Um, this fella is a Hispanic Baptist, which is kind of uh, uncommon. But he wrote a very small book about the book of 1 Peter and has an interesting burden all through it. That is that 1 Peter is for you. Uh, that's the title he gives it, 1 Peter for you. Uh, what he's saying is that it's it's for us. It's for Western, Western prosperous, safe, soft, comfortable, secure Christianity. First Peter is for us today. This is not a first century dusty old scroll that we can safely set aside. The warnings to arm ourselves with the same mind as Christ are for us today. I appreciate his thought about that. I've had to do a little bit of uh, what Daniel has said before about swallowing the meat and spit out the bones, but he says something here about uh, this passage in First Peter and and arming ourselves with the mind of Christ, even when we look around and say there's no there's no storm, there's not even a cloud, we're safe. Things are different now than they were at the time of First Peter. Here's what he says. Be patient with me. It's only uh, a paragraph or two. I, I start squirming when people get a book out and start reading, so shame on me. I'm, I'm doing what, something I'm not crazy about myself. If I could have said this in my own words, I would have. Okay, this writer says, I suspect that even a casual reading of the New Testament would show that the Christian life will be hard. Christians will face obstacles and opposition, but they must endure joyfully and faithfully through their lives. I suspect, though, that if you examined Western Christianity, you would not come to this conclusion about the Christian life. What about you? Take that to be addressed to me. You can consider it yourself. What view of Christianity do you have? What do you do with biblical statements like, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God? Hmm. Squirm a little, maybe. I, I do. What do we do with that? What do we do with a scripture that says that we're heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him? Pinning our inheritance to suffering with Christ, like Christ, as Christ. What do we do with that? That's a fair question. Maybe you have a favorite scripture verse on your refrigerator or on a wall in your home. I do. He makes a prediction here, and I think it's a pretty good prediction. Some verses just don't go well on the wall, do they? It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Why is it we don't all lay hold of that? Well, partly, that's a costly verse, and partly, we're not sure what to do with it. It's been assigned to us to suffer with Christ as a testimony to a watching world, the just for the unjust. How does that happen? What do we do with these verses? It is possible that Christians in the West, I think he's addressing us here if we're, if we're fair and honest. He's certainly addressing me. It's possible that Christians in the West have drunk so deeply from the well of materialism, consumerism, and prosperity that we do nothing with these verses except to gently, quietly ignore them. 
quietly blessing God that our faith has cost us so little. If so, we are not living the Christianity of the New Testament, the Christianity of 1 Peter. Our thinking needs to change, or as Peter would put it, we must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ who suffered for us in the flesh. I think that was well said. Uh, it still leaves the question, what is this mind of Christ thing, this armor thing? So if we're like the men that went down in this submersible and they were warned, this is risky, this is experimental, this is unproven, uh, you could be crushed. And they went down anyway. Shame on them. Uh, that's just crazy. Your life isn't yours to throw away and certainly the other men on the sub with you. It's not your lives to throw away. We have a warning. When we come to Christ through the new birth, we're warned. We don't come into a, a, a promised land playground. We come into a bloody battlefield. Christ's blood is on that battlefield, and we are expected to participate in that. Christ suffered for us in the flesh. All right, I'm going to just take this as it comes for as much then since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. I want to notice here a couple things. Christ suffered for us. This theme is all through 1 Peter. There's about four things that are in every chapter of 1 Peter and Christ's suffering over and over and over. If you feel like I'm harping on some of these things, I have two excuses. One is it's in the text and two is it's taking me a while to wrap my mind around the fact that 1 Peter is for me. In a context of soft, safe, secure Christianity, a book that warns that there's a storm coming is for me. So I'm working through that. I apologize to Daniel this morning that the things that I seem to park on, I don't think are my hobby horse. They're actually what I'm struggling with. I think here we're right at the kernel, we're right at the core of First Peter. It's not only that we are called to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, to endure stripes that heal the unjust. Not only that, but that is for today, and that storm is coming. All right, let's look into the perfect law of liberty. Verse 1, since Christ suffered. Christ did suffer, it's in all five Chapters, if you'll bear with me, just uh, turn to chapter 1, verse 11. Searching, this is the prophets, searching diligently, searching, for, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. Searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 21, we already read it. Chapter 2, verse 21. Uh, even here unto you are called. Christ suffered for us. Verse 23. He was reviled. He suffered. He threatened not. Verse 24. He bore our sins on the tree. His stripes healed us. Christ suffered in the flesh. Chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Chapter 4, verse 1. Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh. Chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's 
sufferings. Chapter 5, verse 1. Elders which are among you, I exhort, and I'm also an elder, a witness of the suffering of Christ. You know, I don't know if Peter's saying here, he has suffered like Christ, he's experienced the suffering of Christ, or he saw the suffering of Christ. But I think he knew that his time was close. He would be crucified upside down, if historians have it right, within a year of writing this epistle, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So here we have an epistle that seems to be obsessed with the sufferings of Christ, but there's a point to it. If we're going to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ, we need to know what he did and why. He suffered in the flesh, the just for the unjust. Um, back to 1 Peter 4, verse 1. He suffered in the flesh. We should just set aside the oldest heresy, that exists about our Savior, and that is that he didn't really suffer in the flesh. The um, Gnostics were quite certain that he was an apparition. He appeared to be flesh. The Docetists, I think, Docetists said that Christ had some kind of special flesh, uh, spiritual celestial flesh. I'm not sure Menno Simons didn't get tangled up in that. The idea that it wasn't boring, old-fashioned uh, blood and bones and skin and like we're familiar with. This was Jesus' flesh. It was celestial. It was special, the Docetists say. He only appeared to suffer. He didn't have nerve endings that were telling his brain, this is excruciating, driving out screams of agony. It just seemed that way. Okay, well, thankfully that heresy can be set aside because Peter tells us, an eyewitness, Christ suffered in the flesh. That would be the place to fix it if Christ's flesh wasn't real flesh. Of course, he had his supernatural flesh, or it wasn't flesh like us. No, he was bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. I'm glad we can set that aside. All right, so here we come to this phrase that I've spent some time wrestling with and kind of almost... Dreaded, finally come to this sermon and presume to stand up here and tell you what is the mind of Christ. Thankfully, you don't have to examine other churches and two billion other people to figure out what the mind of Christ is. We can go to the word of God and um, be thankful that there is what there is. Explain this to us. In Ephesians 6, Paul tells us that we're to put on and take unto ourselves the full armor of God. Six Weapons, six types of armor that we're to put on. We have a, a, uh, a belt of truth and a, uh, sandals of preparation for the gospel of peace and a, uh, breastplate of righteousness. We have a sword of the spirit, a shield of faith, helmet of salvation, the whole armor of God. But Peter has something to add to that. He says, arm yourselves with a mind, with a mind of Christ. We should take a little time and look at this. Because apparently what's being asked here of Christians is that they arm themselves. Okay, don't go down in that plastic submersible before you arm yourself. Don't experience the difficulties, the suffering, the tribulation that's called on to enter the kingdom. Don't do that without the mind of Christ. And you say, I say, I'm a child of God. Got that covered. Confessed, repented of my sin. Jesus come into my heart. 
angels rejoicing, child of God, mind of Christ, right here. Not according to Peter. If we flip back to uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, we read that he's writing to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is who he's addressing, people that name Jesus as Lord. According to his abundant mercy, chapter 1, verse 3, he's begotten us. Again, he's talking to Christians, just as Paul was with the armor of God. You need to put on the armor of God. You need to take it unto you, or you're not able to stand. Peter says, you need to arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. We look at this text here, back to chapter 4 and verse 1, and he uses two words. It's a little insulting, actually, Peter. I guess we can let him off the hook a little, and the fisherman struggle with his grammar a little bit. Or did he? There's some repetition here that's here for a reason. He says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. He didn't need to say likewise and same. It's redundant. I think my English teachers would have marked that off and said, this word is unnecessary. You can arm yourself likewise, or you can arm yourself with the same mind. But likewise with the same mind is hammering a point home. Consider Christ's mind. It's armor. You need it. Likewise, same, exactly. Example, footsteps. Arm yourselves. All right, Uh, in the past weeks, there was this tragedy with the state troopers. One shot, one killed. One trooper killed the shooter. I was struck by the difference between a trooper, and I apologize if I don't have the story just right. I actually haven't read much about it. Um, It was a tragedy. I blessed them for their sacrifice and putting their lives on the line to protect my family and all of us. I, I don't mean at all to make light of it, but... This issue of going into harm's way without sufficient armor, without being prepared, I think we see a little bit of that. One trooper, as I understand it, pulled up in his car, and before he drew his weapon, was facing the barrel of a high-power rifle, and the only protection he had was a windshield, if I have this right, and he was shot and killed. I'm assuming that that trooper received the same warning, this is a this is an active shooter situation. This man is armed and dangerous. You arm yourselves, prepare yourselves. And here's a man that was caught off guard and underarmed, a, a thin piece of glass between him and harm's way. Another trooper, if I have my story right, came in a helicopter. And I understand they have armor underneath and had a bigger gun than the big gun the shooter had and came in armed with a helicopter and a big gun and overcame the adversary. Now, I see a difference there. We're told to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. I think it's just that important. If we presume to go into harm's way and take on the tribulations of the Christian life, and we have not specifically armed ourselves with the mind of Christ, I think we have no better than a windshield. In front. I know I have no better than a windshield in front of me and those that would destroy my soul.
to think just a little bit about what is this same mind armor. We want to go in with the big gun and the altitude, uh, elevation, the helicopter, the armor. We want to go up against the enemies of our soul armed with the mind of Christ. And I think to myself, first, do I know the mind of Christ? And second, am I armed with it? Those are two pretty important questions. I want to talk a little bit about this same mind armor. I want you to think about armor and how important it is. We all know um, what calluses are. Calluses are tougher than skin. I imagine uh, if I worked for Fisher Brothers or maybe if I did the boys' work at Colder Farms, if I didn't have calluses, it would destroy my skin. Calluses are a form of armor. They're a hardening. They harden you against damage from the labor. Think of scar tissue. I have a scar on my thumb. I had the tip of it cut off, and I've got a really hard uh, tip to my thumb with no feeling to it. It's scar tissue. It's harder and stronger. It would take a lot to hurt that thumb. It's armor, scar tissue. Uh, broken bone. Uh, Steve's not here this morning. Probably glad because I, I would have picked on him. But he's got his broken bone. When that heals, the break will be stronger than the rest of the bone. See, that's armor. Now, what are the odds he's going to end up with another bale hit him in the same spot? It, it doesn't serve a lot of purpose, but we see that armor is a hardening. Armor is a strengthening. It makes us safe when we come up against things that would hurt us. The mind of Christ is armor. Broken metal. Jason does a lot of welding. I haven't proven it, but I understand that if metal is broken and been welded, it will never break again at the weld. The weld is stronger than the surrounding metal. It's armor. Boot camp. We send special forces people off. They endure incredible suffering, and they come out of it stronger, better warriors, safer soldiers because of what they've undergone. And so it is with the Christian life. You know, if our faith is untried, if we know nothing, our Christian experience has been lisping a sinner's prayer, getting our forehead wet, and two hours gathered together with the saints every Sunday. If that is our Christian life, we're unarmored. We might as well take on that shooter with nothing but a windshield in front of us. We are to arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. All right, we have a few minutes. I want to just look at a few passages that might give us a hint at what the mind of Christ is. We know his attributes, we know his words, we know his actions. We're not called to act like him or think like him. We're taught to have his mind and that that is armor. That hardens us, it toughens us, it makes us better warriors. You don't need to turn here, 1 Corinthians 2. We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Well, there it is. What's this about putting it on? Well, apparently it's something that we have access to or awareness of. But what we're called to do is to arm ourselves with it. Use it. Take up the shield. Arm yourself with the mind. The same mind that suffered for us. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 5. I'm not sure I have that right. Yeah, 
I know I don't. Uh, where is it? It is right. Ephesians isn't helping me. Sorry. Let this mind be in you. Let it be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Who? That is Jesus, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. If I understand that word right, in the Greek it speaks of an emptying. He emptied himself, the entirety of himself. Even the Lord Jesus, he became a shell and took on himself the form of a servant made in the likeness of men. Found himself in fashion as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God highly exalted him, giving him a name above every name. So here's a clue. Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. It empties itself. It becomes a servant. It's humble. It's obedient. And it accepts obedience even unto death. The living sacrifice role is what Jesus did. That's his mind. Let that mind be in you. Arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Romans 13. Romans 13, verse 12. You think of Romans 13 as telling us a lot about submitting to authorities, but it doesn't end that way. It ends with, 12 to 14, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, let us cast off works of darkness, let us put on the armor of light, let us walk honestly, not in rioting, not in drunkenness, not in chambering, not in wantonness, not in strife, not in envying. So verse 13, holy living, our life is holy living, and that's armor, that's the armor of light. Put ye on the Lord Jesus, I take that to be the mind of Christ. That verse 12 and verse 13 are telling us this is what you need to do. This is the armor. It's the armor of light is what Paul calls it. Put that armor on. Put on the Lord Jesus. Arm yourself with the same mind in Peter's words. Walk honestly, not rioting, drunkenness, chambering, wantonness, strife, and holy living. Had somebody asked me yesterday, uh, somehow found out that I was preaching today, what's your sermon about? I said, holy living as armor. Holy living as something that makes us tough and strong and safe. Holy living, living that patterns ourself after Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus. Arm yourself with the same mind. All right, last, uh, last reference. We were already in Hebrews 12. You should just fall open to that. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3. Your mind is no more than a windshield. You are to arm yourself with the mind of Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Compassed about as we are with so great a cloud of witnesses. Go back to those witnesses. They were tough. They were callous. They were welded. They had broken bones yielded. They were strong. They were safe because they had suffered much. Verse 37, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. Tempted, slain with a sword, wandering in sheepskins. How many of us have experienced any of that? Destitute, afflicted, tormented. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered in deserts, mountains, dens, caves of the earth. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Down to chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so many that have suffered, 
so greatly for righteousness. Those are the witnesses that surround us. Christ is our witness, and these are our witnesses, and now it's our day. Compassed about so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Two things. Look unto Jesus, verse 2. Consider him, verse 3. I believe this is describing the mind of Christ. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is how Jesus' mind worked. He looked through impossible suffering and saw right past it. He said, I'm going to be seated down at the right hand of God. He said, that's going to hurt and it's shameful. I'm defiled if I'm hung upon a tree. He despised the shame. He looked past it. He looked through it. That is the mind of Christ. Verse 2, look unto Jesus. Verse 3, consider him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand, the throne of God. Consider him. He endured contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You know, the enemy of my soul, the enemy of all of our souls, has a high-power rifle, and our minds, I don't think, are any better than a windshield at stopping bullets. We're offered a mind that is impenetrable. It's the mind of Christ. Look unto Jesus, consider him. Yes, well, more can be said. Um, This issue of the holy life as armor would be the burden, Lord willing, in my next message. And that is introduced by the next phrase in this verse, he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Going to need to give that some attention, but that is the fruit of the mind of Christ. We have no patience for, we are not controlled by this sin. We are very much like the Military man who's been discharged, he's got his military papers. Here's our relationship to sin. I I have my discharge papers. And as I'm walking past sin in the form of a sergeant, and he says, what are you doing, private? Get in that kitchen and wash those dishes, I see. Okay? I'm going to slink off to the kitchen. I'll, I'll go participate in that sin. That's just what I'm used to. Wait a minute. I have discharge papers here. You have no authority over me. That might be my old pattern, but I have a new pattern. You don't give me orders anymore. That's our relationship to sin after the new birth, or it's meant to be. It's important that it is. All right, let's kneel for prayer.